0: In his Discourse on the Significance of Voice in Preaching, Charles Spurgeon emphasizes the primacy of substance over vocal aesthetics. He advises against excessive preoccupation with the voice, accentuating that the most melodious tone is futile without meaningful and timely truths to convey. He likens an empty but well-delivered speech to a well-driven cart with nothing in it, indicating that content is the payload that gives the voice its value. Spurgeon acknowledges the importance of delivery, referencing the Greek orator Demosthenes who prioritized delivery in his teachings. Yet he contends that excellent delivery is inconsequential if the speaker has nothing substantial to deliver. The voice, no matter how outstanding, becomes just a hollow sound if not coupled with a well-informed mind and a passionate heart. He warns that a preacher with a great voice but devoid of these qualities is merely a voice crying in the wilderness, using a biblical allusion to stress the loneliness and futility of such an endeavor. The preacher draws on historical and cultural references, like Plutarch's expression, Vox et praeterea nihil, a voice and nothing more, to assert that a preacher's role is not to be a singer or entertainer, but a conveyor of divine truths. He contrasts the lasting impact of George Whitfield's heartfelt preaching with the ephemeral entertainment of a musician like Paganini, suggesting that the former's voice carried weight because it was powered by earnest conviction. Also, Spurgeon uses the metaphor of a trumpet, highlighting that a preacher's voice should be robust and resilient, ready for the harsh realities of spiritual warfare, rather than delicate and ornamental. He indicates that a preacher's voice is a secondary tool in the larger mission of preaching, which is primarily about delivering God's message with sincerity, depth, and conviction. In this way, Spurgeon sets forth a powerful argument for focusing on the substance and earnestness of the message rather than the beauty or charm of its delivery. Moreover, Spurgeon, in his reflection on the nuances of oratory, maintains the profound impact of a speaker's voice in the transmission and reception of a message. He advises speakers not to underestimate the power of their voice, suggesting that its quality can significantly influence the outcome of the speech. Drawing on the thoughts of the philosopher Plato, Spurgeon points out the enchanting power of eloquence, particularly noting how the tone and delivery of a speech can captivate an audience, transporting them emotionally and intellectually. Plato's vivid description reiterates the lasting impact eloquence can have, where the audience is left ruminating over the words and tone for days, feeling as if they have been in a different, more enlightened world. However, Spurgeon contrasts this potential for transcendence with a caution against monotony. He vividly illustrates the negative impact of dull, monotonous delivery through the metaphor of a humble bee in a pitcher, which evokes the tedious drone of an uninspiring speaker. This analogy is further brought to life with a parody of Gray's Elegy, repeating how a monotonous delivery can lead to the audience's disengagement, turning what could be a lively and enlightening experience into a soporific ordeal. Through these illustrations, Spurgeon articulates a balanced view on the significance of vocal delivery in preaching and oration. While the truth and substance of the message are of utmost importance, the effectiveness and memorability of its delivery are also crucial. A well-modulated, engaging tone can enhance the audience's understanding and appreciation of the message, while a monotonous delivery can detract from and dull its impact. Thus, he encourages speakers to consider their voice as a powerful tool in their rhetorical arsenal, one that can significantly sway the hearts and minds of their listeners. Furthermore, Spurgeon, in a vivid critique, expresses profound disappointment with a preacher's monotonous delivery of sermons, Despite acknowledging the inherent value of the doctrines being preached, Spurgeon sees the preacher's unvarying tone as a significant detriment, likening it to self-imposed ministerial suicide. He mourns the wasted potential, noting that the preacher was given a multifaceted instrument, presumably the gospel or the ability to preach, but chose instead to harp on one string, thereby limiting the resonance and reach of his message. Spurgeon employs rich, evocative imagery to describe the monotony he observes. He compares the preacher's voice to a mill wheel, which hums the same tune with a dreary waste of sound, regardless of the content of the sermon. This relentless sameness, he notes, persists whether the subject is as joyous as heaven or as dire as eternal damnation. He bemoans the lack of modulation that could have lent some music and variety to the preacher's words, suggesting that even a slight accidental variation in loudness does little to alleviate the horrible sameness. The critique is not just of the monotonous delivery, but of the missed opportunity it represents. Spurgeon implies that the preacher's voice, like an instrument, has the potential to vary its tone and pitch, to infuse the sermon with emotion and variety, thereby making the divine message more impactful and relatable. Instead, the preacher's voice remains a howling wilderness of speech, offering no relief or engagement to the listener. It's a lamentation for what is lost when the message of the gospel, which is inherently diverse and rich, is reduced to a tedious, unchanging drone, failing to capture the nuance and grandeur of its themes. Spurgeon's critique serves as a poignant reminder of the power of delivery in preaching and the need for variety and vitality in communicating messages of profound significance. In addition, Spurgeon, in a humorous critique, addresses the issue of monotonous preaching within the Christian church. He employs the metaphor of an aeolian harp, which, when caressed by the wind, should produce a beautiful, harmonic series of sounds across all its chords. Contrarily, Spurgeon observes that when the divine inspiration or heavenly wind blows through certain preachers, it activates only one string, often the most discordant one, resulting in a repetitive and dull sermon. Spurgeon's use of humor underlines a serious concern about the effectiveness of preaching. He likens the monotonous delivery of some preachers to a drum-drum-drum sound, so unvarying and soporific that it could justify the congregation's tendency to fall asleep. He even playfully imagines an impartial jury exonerating the sleeping congregants, blaming the soporific sermons rather than the listener's lack of attention. While acknowledging other potential causes for sleepiness in the congregation, such as poor ventilation suggested by Dr. Guthrie, Spurgeon cleverly shifts the focus back to the preacher's delivery he implores his fellow preachers to engage the whole range of their spiritual message, comparing the desired variety in sermons to ringing a full chime of bells, rather than droning on with one poor cracked bell. Spurgeon's critique is not just a call for variety in preaching, but an appeal for vitality, depth, and engagement in delivering the Christian message. He underscores the importance of resonating with the congregation's spirit and intellect, ensuring that the Word of God is not just heard but felt and lived. By advocating for a more dynamic and spirited delivery, Spurgeon seeks to awaken both preachers and congregants to the full, resonant potential of spiritual discourse. Further, Spurgeon, in his critique of contemporary preaching, emphasizes a pervasive artificiality in the pulpit. He decries the widespread habit among preachers of adopting an unnatural and affected manner of speaking, a style that is tolerated within the church's walls due to its ubiquity, but would be ridiculed in any other social setting. Spurgeon humorously illustrates this point by comparing preachers' affected tones to a Pantheon warder's theatrical narration, which amused visitors more for its style than the monument's features. Spurgeon accentuates the importance of authenticity in preaching by debating that false delivery should be banished, especially from the pulpit. He suggests that exposure to monotonous and overwrought preaching can instill such a distaste in listeners that silence would be preferable to imitation. This points to a deeper issue of credibility and engagement. When preachers abandon their natural voice, they also forfeit their right to be believed and heard effectively. Besides, Spurgeon laments the existence of a holy tone reserved for Sundays, contrasting sharply with the preacher's everyday voice, implying a dissonance between the preacher's personal and official personas. This division, he disputes, is emblematic of a larger problem of inauthenticity, with the preacher donning the pulpit as one wears a costume, thereby losing the essence of true self and genuine communication. In advocating for a natural and heartfelt approach to preaching, Spurgeon champions the idea that effective spiritual communication relies on sincerity and personal conviction. He insists that only by speaking from the abundance of the heart can preachers hope to connect genuinely with their congregations, fostering a more profound and impactful spiritual discourse. For Spurgeon, the return to an authentic, unadorned mode of preaching is not just a matter of stylistic preference but a moral imperative— crucial for the integrity and vitality of the church's message. Additionally, Spurgeon, in his critique, addresses a certain pompous and bombastic style of preaching known as or rotundo. He describes this manner as dignified and inflated, characterized by a sonorous, rolling, and swollen voice, which he humorously illustrates by reading a hymn in an exaggerated tone. The style, he notes, was once more admired and prevalent than in his contemporary times, but still holds allure for some. Spurgeon offers a comic anecdote to depict the absurdity of such oration. During a sermon, a man comments that the preacher sounded as if he had swallowed a dumpling, to which another retorts that the dumpling was still in his mouth, a wobbling. This imagery vividly captures the unnatural and cumbersome nature of the or rotundo style, making it appear ridiculous. Spurgeon acknowledges that such grandiose oratory might be natural and even impressive for certain dignified individuals, such as Dr. Johnson where it could roll with Olympian grandeur. Yet he sternly cautions against the imitation of such style in the pulpit, especially if it does not come naturally to the preacher. He affirms that in the sacred act of preaching, authenticity is paramount. Mimicking an unnatural style is akin to treason to common decency, and verges on the unpardonable in the sanctity of the pulpit. Spurgeon's critique is not just of the style itself, but of the lack of sincerity and authenticity it represents in religious oration. He promotes a return to genuine, heartfelt preaching that communicates effectively and sincerely with the congregation, free from pretense and affectation. Through this, Spurgeon asserts the importance of integrity and genuineness in spiritual leadership and communication. Also, Spurgeon offers a colorful and critical analysis of the affected styles of speech commonly found in religious oratory. He categorizes these styles with whimsical descriptors ranging from Johnsonian fullness to a genteel whisper and from the robust roaring of the bulls of Bashan to the delicate chip of a chaffinch, illustrating a wide array of exaggerated and artificial manners of speaking. With a humorous genealogy of speech styles, he traces these affectations back to comically named ancestors, suggesting that these modes are less about genuine communication and more about a cultivated and often inherited form of pretense. Spurgeon strongly criticizes these affectations, labeling them as unnatural and strained. He contrasts them with the Jerusalem dialect, which he defines as a person's own natural mode of speech, consistent both inside and outside of the pulpit. He argues that these affected tones are Babylonian, signifying their departure from authenticity and simplicity, which he holds as paramount in delivering spiritual messages. Central to Spurgeon's critique is the notion that the power of the gospel or any serious message is diminished when delivered in such affected manners. He insists that using one's natural voice is not only more sincere, but also more effective in communicating earnestly and reaching people's hearts. He cites the prophet Ezekiel as an ideal, noting his musical and melodious delivery that was pleasing to the Lord, even if it failed to convert the hard-hearted. In concluding, Spurgeon highlights that while the manner of delivery is significant, the ultimate impact on listeners depends on the spiritual condition of their hearts and the work of the Spirit of God. Therefore, he advocates for a return to sincerity and naturalness in speech, especially in the sacred act of preaching, to truly embody and convey the divine message. Moreover, Spurgeon in his counsel to young preachers stresses the significance of refining one's speech for effective ministry. He humorously yet pointedly critiques various regional dialects and vocal idiosyncrasies, associating them with animals or unpleasant sounds, to indicate that such peculiarities, while natural and perhaps endearing in ordinary life, are distracting and undesirable in the serious and solemn act of preaching. Specifically, Spurgeon advises against several speech impediments, the unnecessary insertion of hum-haw in sermons, throat-based speech which can be harmful and less clear, inarticulate mumbling, nasal tones, the omission of the R sound, and lisping. Each of these, he contends, detracts from the authority and clarity necessary for effective communication of the gospel. He urges preachers to open their mouths fully, to use the mouth rather than the nose for speaking, and to strive for clear articulation of every word. He doesn't merely critique, Spurgeon also encourages. He advises his readers to embrace educated nature in their speech, suggesting that natural speech refined through education and practice can become powerful and effective. He maintains this point by referencing the diligent efforts of historical orators like Demosthenes and Cicero, who went to great lengths to perfect their public speaking. Their dedication to oratory excellence, despite personal and physical hindrances, serves as an inspiring example for preachers who are called to the noble task of proclaiming truth. In essence, Spurgeon's guidance is about respect for the act of preaching and the message being delivered. He believes that by dedicating themselves to improving their oratory skills, preachers honor their calling and enhance their ability to communicate effectively, thus ensuring their message resonates clearly and profoundly with their audience. Furthermore, in his advice on public speaking, Spurgeon points out the importance of being heard clearly and distinctly for effective communication, particularly in preaching. He reiterates that it's not merely the physical ability to be loud, but the clarity and distinctiveness of speech that make a preacher's words impactful. Spurgeon criticizes those who have the physical capability but speak too softly or unclearly, rendering their preaching ineffective. He debates that modesty should not inhibit a person from speaking clearly. Rather, those unable to project their voice should consider stepping aside for more audibly gifted individuals. Spurgeon places a high value on distinct utterance, disputing that it is more crucial than mere volume. He advises speakers not to rush or overlap their words, as doing so would muddle the message and diminish its impact. Furthermore, he warns against excessively slow speech, which can bore listeners, as well as against excessively rapid or loud speech, which can overwhelm and confuse the audience. According to Spurgeon, Overly rapid speaking turns an organized presentation into a chaotic cacophony, likening it to a barrage of animalistic noises and natural tumults. This description vividly portrays the chaos and lack of clarity that can result from such speech. Ultimately, Spurgeon advocates for a balanced approach to public speaking, where the speaker's words are given a fair chance by being pronounced clearly and at a reasonable pace. He repeats the need for preachers to modulate their voices appropriately, ensuring that their message is not only heard, but also understood and appreciated by the audience. In essence, effective communication for Spurgeon involves a harmony of volume, clarity, and pacing, enabling the preacher's message to resonate powerfully and clearly with the congregation. In addition, Spurgeon conveys a vivid critique of preachers who allow their physical exertion to overshadow the content and delivery of their sermons. He paints a picture of a preacher so consumed by fervent oration that they resemble a wild horse with a hornet in its ear, a metaphor illustrating the chaotic and uncontrolled nature of their delivery. This frenetic energy leads them to gasp for breath, disrupting the sermon and, according to Spurgeon, descending into indecency. He is particularly disdainful of those who repeat this offense multiple times within a single sermon, indicating not just a momentary lapse, but a habitual lack of self-control and decorum. For Spurgeon, the act of preaching is both an art and a spiritual exercise that should transcend the mere physicality of speech. He argues that the audience should remain blissfully unaware of the preacher's breathing, comparing the ideal unnoticed nature of respiration to the circulation of the blood, essential yet unobtrusive. By doing so, Spurgeon underlines the importance of a seamless delivery that maintains the sanctity and focus of the divine message. His use of vivid imagery and strong language underscores his disappointment and discomfort with the state of preaching he critiques. It is a call to his contemporaries and successors in ministry to uphold a standard of preaching that is dignified, controlled, and reflective of the profound spiritual responsibility it carries. Overall, Spurgeon's critique is a passionate appeal for reverence, self-discipline, and maturity in the pulpit. Ensuring that the physical act of delivering a sermon never overshadows the spiritual and intellectual weight of the message being conveyed. Further, Spurgeon provides profound advice to fellow preachers regarding the use of their voice in sermons. He cautions against the excessive and unnecessary exertion of voice, commonly seen as loud or boisterous shouting. Spurgeon notes that this overexertion can lead to physical ailments such as irritated lungs and an inflamed larynx, detracting from the preacher's well being and effectiveness. He advocates for a more measured and economical use of voice, emphasizing the importance of adapting to the audience's size and the venue's acoustics. Spurgeon's counsel is not just about physical health, but also about the spiritual and emotional impact of preaching. He advises against overwhelming the audience with loudness, which can lead to discomfort rather than enlightenment. Instead, he suggests finding the right balance where the voice is loud enough to reach the furthest listener, but not so loud as to cause a disturbance or a headache. This balance ensures that the message is delivered effectively and received in a way that moves the heart rather than assaults the ears. In smaller settings or when ministering to the sick, Spurgeon accentuates the need for even greater care. He advocates for gentle, soft-spoken words that comfort and soothe rather than startle or distress. The preacher's voice should be like a bomb, especially to those who are ill or infirm, delivering the message of God in a manner that is both heard and felt in the soul. Ultimately, Spurgeon's advice centers on the wise and compassionate use of one's voice in ministry. He encourages preachers to be mindful of their physical limitations, the needs of their audience, and the sacred task of delivering God's Word in a manner that is both audible and spiritually uplifting. By doing so, preachers can ensure that their sermons are not just heard, but truly listened to, and that their ministry is both enduring and endearing. Besides, Spurgeon vehemently opposes the mechanical and artificial methods of voice modulation traditionally taught to preachers. He criticizes the old rule of starting sermons in a soft tone and gradually increasing to a loud crescendo, advocating instead for a natural, emotionally-driven approach to vocal variation. Spurgeon mocks the absurdity of such artificial methods with satire, affirming their inauthenticity and detachment from genuine emotional expression. He particularly scorns the practice of deliberately speaking softly at the beginning of sermons to create dramatic effect, labeling it deceptive and a misguided effort to mimic popular preachers known for such tactics. Spurgeon's disdain for preaching solely for effect is evident as he contends that it is a pursuit of falsehood and triviality, which undermines the sermon's integrity and the preacher's sincerity. He urges preachers to be naturally varied in their speech, adapting their volume and intensity to the emotional ebb and flow of the sermon. This approach, according to Spurgeon, is not only more authentic, but also more engaging and effective in communicating the message. He asserts clarity and distinction in speech from the outset, urging preachers to command attention with bold, confident tones. While not dismissing the effectiveness of louder or softer tones, Spurgeon debates that it is the force and management of these tones, rather than sheer volume, that make an impact. He cites examples of historical figures renowned for their compelling yet not necessarily loud speech, illustrating that audibility and impact are more about vocal control and emotional force than volume. In sum, Spurgeon encourages preachers to embrace a wide range of vocal expressions, akin to the natural variations in everyday speech. His advice seeks to liberate preachers from the constraints of artificial delivery methods and to embolden them to speak with natural, heartfelt conviction Ensuring that their sermons resonate with genuine emotion and clarity. Additionally, Spurgeon passionately advocates for dynamic and varied sermon delivery in his guidance to fellow preachers. He firmly places the modulation of voice, involving the alteration of pitch, tone, and volume, as a crucial element in engaging an audience. Spurgeon's advice stems from a deep understanding of human psychology and a compassionate concern for both the preacher and the listener's experience. Spurgeon highlights the need for variety in preaching, drawing an analogy between the diversity in God's creation and the variety needed in sermon delivery. He disputes that just as God has created a world rich in diversity to cater to human desires for variation, preachers, too, should offer a variety of tones and pitches to maintain audience engagement and interest. He critiques the monotonous, unvarying delivery that he describes as a form of cruelty to listeners, comparing the dull droning of a preacher to the tedious buzzing of an insect both capable of inducing sleep in their victims. Also, Spurgeon is critical of the tolerance for such monotony within the church and indicates the detrimental effect it has on the spiritual engagement and attentiveness of the congregation. He notes the paradox of sermons that are meant to awaken and invigorate the spiritual life of listeners, but instead lull them into a state of sleep and inattention. He humorously references the commonality of sleep-inducing sermons— suggesting it's an ill case when the preacher's delivery contradicts the watchfulness and prayerfulness advocated in the text of the sermon. In essence, Spurgeon's advice is a call to preachers to be mindful of their delivery, advocating for a dynamic and varied approach that considers the listener's experience. His counsel reflects a deep respect for the act of preaching and a compassionate concern for the spiritual welfare of the audience, encouraging preachers to avoid the tedium of sameness and instead strive to engage and invigorate their listeners with varied and lively delivery. Moreover, Spurgeon, with a mix of wit and wisdom, addresses the perils of monotonous preaching, not just for the tedium it causes the congregation, but for the physical toll it takes on the preacher. He humorously urges preachers to abandon the monotonous intonation not only out of compassion for their listeners, but also as a self-care measure to prevent clergymen's sore throat, a condition stemming from repetitive strain on specific throat muscles due to prolonged speaking in one tone. He likens the human voice to a drum, explaining that hitting it in the same spot repeatedly will wear it out quickly. Similarly, using the same vocal tone continually will lead to faster wear and potential health issues like bronchitis. Spurgeon cites the opinions of notable individuals like Mr. McCready, an eminent tragedian, and Samuel Fenwick, a medical doctor, to bolster his argument. MacReady suggests that sore throats are less a result of the exertion of speaking and more from the unnatural, affected tones often adopted by preachers. He contrasts this with the rigorous but varied vocal usage of actors and barristers, who surprisingly suffer less from throat ailments. Fenwick adds a physiological perspective, explaining how constant speaking in one tone strains a specific set of muscles, whereas varied intonation distributes the stress much like alternating muscles and physical activities reduces fatigue. Spurgeon's message is clear. Variety in vocal delivery is essential. It's a matter of health for the preacher and quality of experience for the listener. By adopting a more natural and varied tone, ministers can safeguard their health, enhance their delivery, and possibly extend their vocations while keeping their congregations more engaged. Furthermore, Spurgeon maintains the significant health benefits that ministers can reap from frequent preaching. He posits that the common throat and lung ailments afflicting ministers are largely due to infrequent but intense speaking engagements. Drawing from his own experiences and broad observations, Spurgeon contends that a regimen of preaching five to six times weekly, and possibly up to 12 or 14, is not only manageable but beneficial. He likens ministers to costermongers, street vendors, who, through daily vocal exertion, build resistance to throat ailments, suggesting that continuous use of the voice acts as a form of exercise, strengthening the vocal cords and lungs. To further bolster his argument, Spurgeon references the opinion of Dr. Fenwick, who notes the detrimental effects of irregular vocal exertion common among clergymen. Dr. Fenwick prescribes regular and daily practice of vocalization as a preventive measure against such ailments. This practice is akin to the training of athletes or craftsmen who, through daily, steady work, maintain and enhance their physical abilities. Consistent vocal exercise ensures that the voice, like any muscle, remains fit and capable of handling the demands placed upon it. In addition, Spurgeon cites the robust voices of newsboys as an exemplar of vocal endurance and power, born out of daily, loud communication. He humorously suggests that young ministers might benefit from a stint selling newspapers on the streets to open their mouths wider and toughen their larynx. This recommendation, while made in jest, points out the practical need for ministers to engage in regular, strenuous vocal exercise to ensure their preaching is both physically sustainable and impactful. Ultimately, Spurgeon's discourse is a compelling argument for the necessity of regular preaching, not just for spiritual edification, but also for the physical well-being of the ministers themselves. Further, Spurgeon reiterates the critical importance of aligning one's voice to the subject matter, advocating for a congruence that is both effective and engaging. He debates against the inappropriateness of expressing joy in sad themes or being lethargic in discussing joyful topics, repeating that such mismatches can disengage audiences. The key, he suggests, is to ensure that the voice's tone matches the content's emotional and thematic weight, which is crucial in capturing and maintaining audience attention. Spurgeon sternly advises against the artificiality that comes with strictly adhering to predefined rules or imitating other orators. He confesses his own challenges with unintentional mimicry, which he combats actively, acknowledging that it's a common struggle among speakers. He believes that the best way for individuals to express themselves is through their natural, unadulterated voice and mannerisms, akin to the most suitable way of wearing one's beard. This natural expression ensures a harmony between the speaker's thoughts, personality, and their oral presentation. Besides, Spurgeon posits that originality and authenticity are paramount in public speaking. He criticizes affectation and imitation, particularly the emulation of renowned figures or mentors, as detrimental to a speaker's authenticity and effectiveness. The mimic, he notes, is suitable for entertainment in the playhouse, but the genuine, cultured man belongs in more serious and sanctified settings. He underlines the superiority of originality over mimicry and the significance of developing one's unique style and presence. In summary, Spurgeon's counsel is a passionate plea for naturalness, authenticity, and congruence in public speaking, urging speakers to embrace their individuality and align their voice with their message to truly engage and impact their audience. Additionally, Spurgeon underscores the imperative of voice training for preachers equating the necessity of a refined voice in sermon delivery to the laborious efforts of great artists like Michelangelo and Handel. He vividly illustrates the extent of their dedication, suggesting that such intensity of practice is necessary for preachers to effectively communicate the gospel. Spurgeon admires the ancient orator Demosthenes' extreme methods, endorsing similar vigorous exercises to cultivate a powerful and resilient voice capable of captivating and commanding attention in any setting. Spurgeon provides practical advice, meticulous articulation of consonants, regular vocal exercises, and adopting postures that aid in projection. He stresses the importance of a broad chest and unrestricted clothing to facilitate full lung expansion, crucial for a resonant and enduring voice. Moreover, he suggests emulating the natural and powerful stances of ancient orators and encourages seeking out critiques, even if harsh, to continuously refine one's delivery. Yet Spurgeon firmly warns against an overemphasis on delivery that leads to vanity. He disparages the idea of preachers as mere performers, focusing excessively on their appearance and delivery rather than the substance of their message. He contrasts the earnest dedication required for impactful preaching with the superficiality of those who prioritize style over substance, cautioning against becoming a pulpit fop. In essence, Spurgeon's lecture is a call for a balanced approach, rigorous, disciplined voice training to enhance sermon delivery, coupled with a steadfast focus on the spiritual and substantive essence of preaching. He advocates for a voice cultivated not for show, but as a powerful tool to disseminate the divine message, urging preachers to regard every aspect of their delivery as a means to further their sacred duty. Also, Spurgeon accentuates the critical importance of dental health, particularly for those in the public speaking profession. He advocates for greater attention to the condition of children's teeth by parents, affirming that flawed teeth can lead to significant detriments in a speaker's performance. Spurgeon asserts that individuals with poor articulation should consider consulting a dentist, preferably one with thorough scientific knowledge and experience. He suggests that even minor dental corrections, such as a few artificial teeth or other adjustments, can serve as a lasting benefit to speakers. Spurgeon references a detailed observation from his dentist, which explains the physiological consequences of tooth loss. According to the dentist, when teeth are lost, there is a subsequent contraction of facial and throat muscles. This contraction disrupts the normal function of vocal organs, leading to speech impairments such as lisping, a rapid or abrupt drop in speech, or faint delivery. In more severe cases, it can result in mumbling or a clattering sound. The dentist's analogy likens the human vocal apparatus to a musical instrument, suggesting that just as a missing note can disrupt a melody, Missing teeth can disrupt speech symmetry and clarity. Highlighting the importance of these seemingly minor details, Spurgeon indicates that nothing is trivial in the esteemed calling of public speaking. He insists that speakers are obligated, for the sake of their work, to utilize available remedies to correct any deficiencies. By drawing attention to dental health, Spurgeon conveys that maintaining or improving small physical aspects can have a profound impact on professional performance, and that such attentiveness can prevent substantial neglects or errors in the field of public speaking. His advice encapsulates a broader message about the value of attending to every aspect of one's presentation, no matter how insignificant it may seem. Moreover, Spurgeon provides practical and straightforward advice to preachers and public speakers regarding the management of their vocal habits, particularly focusing on how to properly care for their throats. He maintains the importance of this aspect of public speaking, suggesting that speakers should clear their throats adequately before they begin to speak. However, he warns against the overindulgence in such clearing during the speech itself. Spurgeon illustrates his point by mimicking a speaker who constantly interrupts his own flow with hem-hem, suggesting that this is not only distracting, but also detracts from the gravity and importance of the subject matter being discussed. Furthermore, Spurgeon critiques those who speak as if they are choked up or constantly on the brink of expectorating, He notes that such habits can be off putting to the audience and may even induce a sense of discomfort or disgust. While he concedes that certain nasal sounds or sniffs can be excused in the case of a cold, he strongly advises against allowing such sounds to become a habitual part of one's speaking pattern, humorously suggesting that such habits should be dealt with as public nuisances. Throughout his advice, Spurgeon maintains a balance between a candid, almost humorous approach to these bodily functions and the serious call for professionalism and decorum in public speaking. He acknowledges the potential vulgarity in discussing such topics, but defends his choice as a necessity for the betterment of public discourse. In doing so, Spurgeon not only addresses the physical aspects of public speaking, but also the impact of these physicalities on the perception of the speaker and the reception of the message being conveyed. The overarching theme is one of mindfulness and self-regulation in the service of effective communication. Last but not least, Spurgeon imparts wisdom on maintaining vocal health, essential for their vocation. He advises against the common practice of wrapping the throat with warm comforters or scarves, a method he believes contributes to throat vulnerabilities and recurrent colds. Instead, he advocates for exposing the throat to air, akin to sailors, suggesting a more relaxed approach with loosely tied ties and turned down collars. He humorously proposes growing beards as a natural and beneficial protection, sharing anecdotes of improved health and vocal strength. Spurgeon critically views the use of popular throat lozenges and emollient compounds, such as marshmallow rock or pulmonic wafers, which he disputes offer only temporary relief while ultimately weakening the throat. He recommends astringents, particularly cayenne pepper, drawing an analogy between the strengthening of leather with tanning agents and the fortifying effect of astringents on the throat. This approach aligns with his philosophy of seeking long-term health over short-term solutions. Sharing personal practices, Spurgeon recounts his use of chili vinegar and water to revitalize his voice during lengthy sermons and spicy beef tea for soothing throat relaxation. He is modest about his medical expertise, playfully referring to himself as a quack, yet his suggestions stem from a place of experienced practicality and concern for fellow preachers. In concluding, Spurgeon points out perseverance— natural adaptation, and divine assistance as key to overcoming early vocal challenges. He encourages young preachers to continue their efforts, assuring them that with time, practice, and faith, their preaching will grow in strength and impact. His message is one of resilience and faith in the journey of preaching, coupled with practical wisdom for maintaining one's physical instrument, the voice. In conclusion, Spurgeon, in his Discourse on Preaching, reiterates the critical importance of content over vocal delivery he posits that a sermon's substance is paramount and warns against the pitfalls of focusing solely on vocal aesthetics. For Spurgeon, an eloquent delivery devoid of meaningful content is as ineffective as an empty cart, regardless of its ornamental exterior. He acknowledges the role of delivery in enhancing a sermon, but insists it should never overshadow the message's core truths. In addition, drawing from historical references and employing rich metaphors, Spurgeon critiques the monotony often found in sermons. He views this as not just a flaw in delivery, but a detriment to the preacher's effectiveness and the spiritual engagement of the audience. He vividly likens monotonous preaching to a droning insect capable of lulling listeners into disengagement. In his plea for variety and emotional resonance, Spurgeon encourages preachers to align their voice's tone with the content's emotional and thematic weight, ensuring a congruent and impactful delivery. Further, Spurgeon discusses the physical aspects of preaching, repeating the importance of voice training and health. He advises against vocal overexertion and artificial modulation, advocating instead for a natural, varied delivery. His guidance extends to practical advice on maintaining vocal health, suggesting exposure to air and natural remedies over commercial products, and encouraging a balance between rigorous training and genuine expression. In essence, Spurgeon's discourse is a call for authenticity and sincerity in preaching, he underlines the preacher's role as a conveyor of divine truths, advocating for a delivery that complements the message's substance. His counsel reflects a deep respect for the act of preaching and a compassionate concern for the spiritual welfare of the audience, urging preachers to avoid monotony and embrace a dynamic, varied, and health-conscious approach to their vocation.